The security clearance process is complicated. Maybe you find yourself applying for a position with the national security community and then finding yourself with questions you don't know how to answer. Maybe you've held an active security clearance for decades and now find yourself wondering if you need to report that DUI or if your bankruptcy will be flagged under the new continuous vetting program. Security clearance policies are changing and it can be hard to keep up. Whether you're a security clearance applicant, defense industry hiring manager, or government agency, it's okay to have questions. We have the answers. Welcome to Security Clearance Insecurity on Federal News Radio. Brought to you by your host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley with security clearance law firm, Bigley Ranish. This is Lindy Kaiser with clearancejobs.com and welcome to this episode of Security Clearance and Security on Federal News Radio. Today I'm super excited to be talking to Amy Grossman. She is a security manager at MIT's Lincoln Laboratory. So no big deal, just MIT security manager and strategist here with us. And I've gotten to know her through kind of being in and around the security clearance community and recently read a profile of her that the MIT laboratory did. And it just called to mind kind of the breadth of the security clearance field. You've been working in this field since I think 2005, it said, Amy. So I'm always super impressed when I talk to folks who have not just kind of started a career in security, but moved through the career field. There's just kind of a wealth and breadth of knowledge around personnel security. So great topic as we're kind of rolling into Women's History Month here and kind of love to highlight great, amazing women working in the national security community in the security field. So on that note, just thank you for joining us. And I would just love to learn more about kind of what attracted you to even starting or got you into your first job working in the security industry. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to share my story with you today. So as as you mentioned, I am a manager at MIT Lincoln Laboratory in the Security Services Department. We are an FFRDC, a federally funded research and development center, which makes us a little different than most folks you'll find in the industrial security profession. The way I found the laboratory was probably how most people find the laboratory. I knew somebody that worked there. We're kind of a little hidden gem outside of Boston, so a lot of people don't even know we exist. But I worked in law enforcement for about five years. I was a criminal justice major. Just like every young person, I wanted to be an FBI agent when I grew up, but I was looking for something different to do with my degree. Law enforcement can be frustrating. You know, you don't always feel like you're making progress. So a friend of the family had suggested I look at Lincoln Labs, and I found an entry-level position for a personnel security coordinator. So my first job was processing security clearances, background checks, badging people. So it was a great way to kind of learn about this security profession that a lot of us hadn't even heard of, you know, when we're in college. I love it. And so talk a little bit about Lincoln Labs, because I think I love to highlight kind of the personnel security process exists outside of kind of the big 10 defense contractors you think of. What kind of work does Lincoln Labs do that actually needs to have a personnel security and a vetting process? Yeah, so we are a top secret research lab. So we have a lot of different work that we're doing for a lot of government agencies, and we require everybody to obtain and maintain a security clearance at the laboratory. So we have a small office that processes all those clearances, keeps them up to date to make sure we can keep working on all those great programs. And the thing I liked about Lincoln Laboratory, you know, I mentioned, you know, that I had wanted to be an agent when I was young. There's a lot of 
travel and change involved with that. This is a great way to support the government, support the war fighter from your own backyard. I was born and raised in Massachusetts, so it was, you know, something that I could do close to home, but also support, you know, the the great mission that I was looking for. The research aspect of it is super important. I think we just recently had a conversation with Mike Orlando, who's currently director of NCSC, and he was talking about how focusing on academia and the work that's being done there is a critical focus for what they're doing in NCSC and trying to kind of, you know, convince stakeholders across that research community of how important that is. It's a great sign for how important MIT takes its work and its research and it, the top secret aspect of it that, I mean, you're doing cutting edge research, but you're also making sure you're protecting what needs to be protected. We definitely take security seriously. Protecting the research and the technologies that, that we're developing are, are really important. And we share that. We invite folks like Mike and, and other agencies like that out to the laboratory for our security Education Week, actually, to talk about these things and just help us reiterate how important this is to protect this information. I love that. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about, again, your career journey and and working in the personnel security field. I loved, again, kind of highlighting that as a woman in this profession, probably would have been the same if you actually joined law enforcement or the FBI in that capacity. You're probably used to working in a lot of these industries where it can be very male dominated. You might be the minority voice or person in your in the room. Has that been your experience and how have you navigated that? What are you doing now to encourage other folks? Yes, it's definitely been a male dominated career field. I never really thought of it in, you know, sort of harsh terms that it's us and them. When I've been navigating my career, I've just sort of kept pushing forward. I would, you know, apply for positions that I was interested in, even though, you know, law enforcement, like you said, and security are very male dominated. But I will say over my career, I've seen a lot of change. So when I first started going to meetings and working groups and conferences, it was definitely a very big male population. But over time, I've seen a big shift and I've seen a lot more women attending these events, which has been great. And even in my own department, I've seen us hiring more and more women, which which is awesome. And something I would have liked to seen over my career is more support, you know, to sort of help each other out and and support each other's careers. And that that's some way that I'm able to give back now. So I've been able to, you know, work with my colleagues to set up a women's network in our department. So we are a resource for mentoring and training and just a network of support. Yeah, I love that. I, I got my career start working in the Army and it was very similar where it was clearly a, a male-dominated scenario. Anytime you're working with the military, just the numbers themselves kind of bear that out. I think finding the right mentors and and stakeholders and folks to help lift you up along the way is certainly key and has always been helpful to me. Can you speak to maybe mentorship or how finding strategic allies within within the industry has that been a part of your career story at all? Yes, I would definitely not have been able to do it alone. Definitely having mentors and a broad group of mentors. So I talk with folks in my profession and outside my profession that have given me pointers and, and tips and encouragement and things to think about, you know, to, to help me advance my career. But you also need cheerleaders or champions within your organization to help you, to talk about you and your accomplishments and things when you're not in the room. You know, somebody to help get you opportunities or connect to opportunities is, is really key. And it's difficult to do, I know, but I tried myself to do that for others because I know how important that is and how instrumental that is, to, you know, broadening your horizons and giving you different 
opportunities and circumstances so you can learn something different and, and grow and, and maybe move in different directions. That is a golden nugget right there. Having mentors both within your organization and kind of external to it. So maybe folks who have outside perspective who aren't in the weeds of what your organization is doing. I think that brings in great kind of thought diversity. And we talk about that a ton of clearance jobs now, kind of the typical career track is no longer a ladder. It's kind of a lattice. And a lot of people are going kind of in and out and across and the IC and DOD are doing a better job of making that possible, which we love to see. So how did you maybe find some of those folks throughout your career? And what have been some of those people who have been kind of those helpers and and stakeholders? I think it's important to think too, some mentorships are very formal, you know, where you talk to somebody or you're assigned a mentor. I prefer the relationships that sort of evolve organically. So I talk to a lot of people. Anybody that knows me knows that I I like to talk. I like to network and, and connect others and connect myself. And that's a way that mentors can evolve. You know, you are talking with people about things that you're working on and things that you're doing. And then sometimes relationships just naturally progress that they give you feedback or they give you input or or they tell you something to think about. So I, I like those relationships that just kind of evolve organically, but there's also the formal mentoring, which can be helpful. And I know a lot of organizations have programs like MIT Lincoln Laboratory as a formal mentorship program for, for new staff and new leaders, and they have different types of it. So both are great. And I really love what you mentioned about success looks different these days. You know, the ladder and the lattice. I think that's awesome. I think that we should be thinking about success differently. I was just talking to my team this morning about that and not just rising up the ladder going as far as you can go. You should be getting different types of experiences at your level, you know, whether it's personnel security or, you know, cyber or, you know, whatever your interests are and whatever opportunities come forward, you should definitely try to gain different experiences and different types of security. You kind of mentioned that talking with your team and being in a management level now within security. So Talk about that career journey a little bit, starting out in personnel security, and now you're in management and strategy. And what does that look like across a security organization to be doing kind of management and strategy versus being in the weeds of the personnel security piece? Yeah, and it's been a long journey. I've been working at Lincoln Labs for almost 18 years. So I've had a lot of different experiences, but I did start entry level, like I mentioned. I did move up to a lead position where I was managing the personnel security office. From there, things kind of expanded. I had different opportunities. I managed investigations at one point. I had locksmiths at another point. You know, things kind of moved and and was a little fluid depending on kind of the needs of the business and, and what was going on. But every time I took on a new office or a new leadership role, I learned more and more things. Now I've worked my way up to manager. And my career's been a little different. You know, I've had a family along the way too. So from when I became assistant manager of government security, managing investigations, PERSEC, and and all those things, I did take a sidestep into a senior staff position so that I could be a little bit more in control of my schedule to help manage my home life and, you know, what was going on. But that was a great experience. And I got to get involved with more projects across the whole department by doing that. And I think that type of role set me up to the management position that I'm in today. 
being the manager of our strategy and project management office has been a, a unique opportunity. I've been able to take all of the corporate knowledge I have about our department and the projects and really help chart our future in, in security. And we've been making a lot of changes, which is exciting, but we're trying to move ourselves forward. And my office has been doing a lot of that. So it's been really exciting. So I always have to do a shout out for all of the, the changes that are taking place across personal security. Give a shout out to my friends in the government on on a show like this. So I love to hear from someone who has worked in personnel security so long because you do see the way that things are changing. We kind of joke that the process moves at a snail's pace, and that is absolutely true. But maybe can you speak to, I don't know, you know, your perspective as a, as a security manager and strategist now, how much you kind of see the arc of the Trust Workforce 2.0 stuff. But do you see these muscle movements now? And do they do they seem significant to you from where you're sitting? They're calling it the biggest transformation in, in security and vetting today. Is that true to your experience from your vantage point? Over time, I've seen a lot of change through the organization, whether it's through the, the forms or how we submit the forms or the fingerprints and how we submit those. Back when I started, we were taking ink fingerprints. So lots of changes happen and it's all moving in the right direction. So we are getting better with you know the, the automation and what information they're looking for, what types of things that they're doing. I know they're trying to be more strategic in what they're looking at in people's backgrounds to so that they can make really good decisions, you know, when granting clearances. But overall, I definitely have seen improvements over time. It, it feels slow when you're in the process. And I feel for people after processing so many clearances and helping so many people through the process, I definitely feel for folks when they're in the process and they're waiting for that interim or they're waiting for that final clearance that it seems like it takes forever. It's definitely a process that is being streamlined and, you know, they're trying to make it as as good as possible, you know, to, to get through, to get you to work. And so talk a little bit about that. So the security clearance and the national security piece of it, we obviously see the frustration point for new applicants or maybe folks who aren't used to working in government or to this process and like, ugh, why do I have to go through this, you know, 100 day vetting procedure? Or why does it take so long to process this? And the good news, I feel like I always try to say like, it is improving processing times, believe it or not, are better than they, they had been a few years ago even. But what other kind of advice or insight do you give to folks who might be considering a career in national security? Why is it worth pursuing despite some of these you know innate challenges that you have to go through in terms of getting through the door? I think it's a great field. If you're looking to, you know, support the country and support the warfighter, it's a it's a great field to be in. You can feel good about the help you're providing, the technology or the research that you're doing, you know, to to help our country. I think is great. The clearance process is tough. The fear of the unknown, I think, is hard for people the first time you go through it is harder than like the 15th time you go through, you know, filling out a, a clearance application. But I think that fear of the unknown, not knowing what the investigator may ask you or not knowing what, what may come of it, people tend to get in their heads and get very nervous about the process. But I think just, you know, fill out your forms, be as honest as possible, make sure that you're putting all the information on there, no matter how old it is or how embarrassing it might be. Just make sure you're answering the questions honestly and completely. And then, you know, just be as patient as possible and wait for that final determination to come through. Yeah, no, I think think that's great feedback. A lot of it is just kind of overcoming your own insecurities. Again, security clearance and security. Hey, there we go. Um, About the process and having some baseline information. I mean, we're big on that, you know, at clearance jobs, just because a lot of the anxiousness that folks have about pursuing, you know, these careers 
is, I mean, it's innate, you know, you don't want somebody maybe looking into certain aspects of your past, but most things can be mitigated through the clearance process and fortune favors the proactive. So I think that's always a takeaway that I give. Are there any other thoughts like that that you give to applicants that might be considering this process and even specific to kind of Lincoln Labs, like what advice would you give to someone who's like, oh, hey, that seems like an amazing career field. What would it take? I would definitely encourage people to talk to the security folks at the organization you're looking to work in. Don't Google things. Don't look things up on the internet because you may see cases where people had hard experiences or they had things in their background that you know precluded them from getting a security clearance. Everybody is different. Everybody is unique. That's why anytime you ask Perry Russell Hunter about a case, his first line is always, it depends because it does depend. Everybody's different and has had different circumstances in their life. So talk that out you know, with the security people in the organization because you may have something different in your background than somebody else might have had. So, you know, it's it's all dependent on on you and your whole background. So have have faith in the process. It seems like a big risk going through that process, but I think there's a big reward. Um, the work, you know, like I said before that you're doing, you know, it's a it's amazing work and it's really impactful and it, it's something you should consider. Absolutely. You know, I think mission is a key driver for people today and the types of careers they want to pursue. And probably nobody has a better mission than national security. I think there's a ton of opportunities out there, the diversity of opportunities, the different aspects and elements your career can take. And like you said, the whole person concept is really operating in folks' favor. So just because you have one incident or issue in your past, I mean, the government is going to look at the totality of circumstances and it depends is pretty much the standard response to if you're able to obtain a security clearance because it's totally going to be dependent upon the individual and the person, their own background and circumstances. Well, I so appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. Was there anything I didn't ask you about that you wanted to touch on? I would just tell people to be brave. So if you're looking to enter this profession, if you're looking to work in security, um, I'm always telling people to be brave. And what that means is, you know, being brave means being afraid, but doing it anyways. So if you're not sure that, you know, you want to work in this profession, you know, give it a try, you know, do your research. If you're already in this profession and you're looking to, to grow, you know, um, ask to be in that meeting or ask for that position. Always try to take that step, take that opportunity and, and give it a try. Yeah, I think there's a lot, you know, within the security career field that that you can do. And I love that advice. Be brave, you know, go out there, pursue opportunities. We need new insights and we need new new folks to consider the personnel security career field and later on they can move into strategy and management like you did amy so there's a whole arc of a career field that you can take within personnel security i love it i am attorney sean bigley and i'm here with my co-host lindy kaiser of clearancejobs.com we're talking this segment about security clearance employment agreements lindy i gotta say when you first broached this topic idea with me i wasn't entirely clear what you were getting at here so i guess why don't we start there <laughs> okay wait wait to throw me under the bus sean so this is a topic you've i think you've talked about a little bit with clearance jobs to, to maybe to some extent or maybe not or maybe it's a figment of my imagination but it's a question that we've definitely gotten and it's about the topic around clearance sponsorships or upgrades or all of that and folks wondering hey 
my company's upgrading me for a security clearance. Can they require me to stay? And my understanding would be unless it's a part of your employment agreement, no, they wouldn't. And I'm familiar with this from the standpoint of folks working in tech. We we sort of see that where if your company gets a certain certification for you, for instance, they will make you sign something that says you have to stay for a certain number of months to repay the cost for them getting that certification. Employment law is something that varies quite a bit by state. And so outside of the unique context of federal employees and to some limited extent, you know, for example, as it pertains to polygraphs and things like that, federal contractors, generally speaking, state law is going to govern here when it comes to, you know, contractual agreements and things like that. And so I can't speak other than in generalities. And if you are somebody who's listening to this and, you know, finds yourself in a situation where you feel like, hey, my employer is taking advantage of me or you're, you know, on the flip side of this and you're an employer and you're looking at potentially drafting an employment contract, you definitely want to get legal counsel in your state who specializes in employment law matters. Generally speaking, yes, this is something that I've seen. It's somewhat rare, I think, because most employers acknowledge that at the end of the day, they're not the one that's footing the bill directly for the clearance, although certainly they have overhead and they have other reasons why they're not going to be thrilled with an employee just jumping ship after they've invested the time and effort and resources to get this person cleared. So I think there's kind of like two sides to this coin. There is, you know, the is it legal and legit side to put something like this in an employment contract? And then there's the is it a good idea as an employee to burn the bridge and and basically jump ship from an employer after they've invested time and effort getting you cleared just because a better paying opportunity or something has come along. So I can certainly speak to the former. Lindy, I, I think you're probably better situated to speak to the latter because you obviously see, you know, the employer side of this. On the legalities piece of it, you know, again, just generalities here, employment contracts have a lot of latitude in most states with you know what can and can't be included within the limits of the law, obviously. And so one of those outer limits is you can't put something fraudulent in an employment contract. And so if the employer is saying, you know, we've spent money to get you this clearance and you know we're valuing it at X amount of dollars. And if you leave our you know service prior to X date after you get the clearance, you owe us that amount of money back that's probably not going to fly. And believe it or not, I've actually seen that on a couple of occasions over the years where employers assign a specific dollar amount to the clearance and they say, this is what you owe us. And I think that employers are going to have a hard time justifying that if it came down to it. Now, there is such a thing as liquidated damages in the law. So if an employer says, well, you know, we can't really assign a dollar value to the cost of you know, what it is that we have to spend to keep you on overhead while you're getting the clearance. So we're going to, you know, roughly approximate it as X and that's what you owe us. That might be a different story, depending on the state, depending on, you know, the amount of liquidated damages that may hold up in court. There's a lot of different factors to this, but Lindy, why don't you talk to kind of the, is it a good idea aspect? Because I think that's something that a lot of employees may overlook when they're just looking at the bottom line. Yeah, it is. We kind of talk about it as a matter of like burning a bridge with an employer if you recently come into an upgrade. Now, I do think we are in a different situation now because it is such a candidate's market. So I tend to say to employers, like, this is where you really need to think. And if you are putting in a candidate for a clearance upgrade and it's tied to their upward mobility within your company, you probably are going to be in a position where you should 
proactively pony up some additional cash to that employee in order to get them to stay. I'm becoming like a total proponent of the whole person concept, Sean, for basically all aspects of life, because I think we can't kind of judge this universally. And that's why I was just kind of curious, like, I don't know of any precedent with employers setting up contractual obligations around a clearance. And I think that's because it is often a a very much a case by case basis. And so for the individual applicant or folks who are going in for an upgrade, thinking through what it means for their career in the short and the long term, if they jump ship now, and if they're going to burn a bridge with their current employer, but also then thinking through, hey, is their current employer potentially not giving them adequate compensation based on their career credentialing? And considering how a security clearance is a career credential, we're getting ready to launch our security clearance compensation report results. And we see the higher the level of your clearance, if you go from a DOD clearance to an IC clearance, your compensation does increase. So that's just, that's data that employers should be aware of and knowing that even if there's not a contractual obligation on your side or on their side, there is a benefit to kind of increasing compensation as clearance goes up because we just see overall across the population that is that is the case. So compensation does go up. It, it pays to get those higher level clearances. So for employers, they should just generally be aware of that. And yeah, I think it's always becomes tough because I see that come up all the time too, where we have candidates tell us all the time, hey, an employer told me that the security clearance was costing them XYZ. I don't know if you, you, like, you kind of mentioned that. I think that becomes a really tricky point for employers to say, because we know the government is actually the one fronting the cost for the clearance investigation. Employers have those overhead costs, but obviously that can vary a lot by employer. But do you have examples maybe even that you've seen candidates who have come to you in some capacity in your practice who have said, hey, an employer is telling me they paid XYZ for my clearance. Has that ever come across? Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of what I was getting at earlier. I mean, I've seen this off the top of my head, I think twice in my career. So again, not very common, but it does happen usually with smaller contractors. And I think what they are trying to get at here and they're unartfully doing it is they're trying to get at a liquidated damages provision where they're saying, you know, it's tough for us to estimate what it costs us to have you on overhead while this, you know, six month or whatever, you know, process unfolds. So if you jump ship, we're going to assign a value to it of whatever. And then, you know, that's what you owe us. As the employer, how are we getting to this number? Is there any rational basis between this number and, you know, what it is that it's actually costing us to keep this person on the books while things play out? Also, as an employee, you want to think about, okay, is there other work, for example, that the employer is having me do that's of value to them while I am getting the clearance, while I'm waiting? So if you have a lower level clearance, for example, and you're being put in for an upgrade, is there sufficient work that I can be doing as the employee while that upgrade is processing such that if it doesn't go through or if I decide to jump ship after it goes through and the employer turns around and says, you owe us money, I can say, no, I was you know, providing a, a service of value for you and you were getting some benefit out of having me on overhead uh, during that time. Whereas, you know, flip side of that, if you're kind of sitting around twiddling your thumbs and the employer doesn't have work for you, that may play into some aspect of a liquidated damages clause. So bottom line, I mean, this is obviously a very, as you said earlier, wonky area of law. I think that for most federal contractors, this is not necessarily going to be a problem or something that they have to confront with the exception of the part of this equation, you know, is this a good idea? Because at the end of the day, obviously there's the dollars and cents, but then, 
you know, you got to look at the longer term. If, if you got an employer who really feels like you burned them and they're being interviewed by a background investigator, I think that's something that people kind of forget. Like there are questions that usually come up about, have you violated an agreement that you had with a prior employer? And if you have to answer that, yes, that's not a good look. And if the employer is, you know, bad mouthing you to background investigators saying, this person, you know, cut and run, they cost me a bunch of money, they violated an agreement that we had, also not a good look. So, you know, you got to look at the big picture here, obviously. Thank you for listening to this episode of Security Clearance Insecurity. Please note the information provided on this program is intended as general information only and should not be construed as legal advice. Consult a security clearance attorney regarding your specific situation. Have a question about security clearance process? Interested in submitting your own topic for security clearance insecurity? Have a question you'd like us to address on a future episode? Drop us an email, editor at clearancejobs.com. Thank you for tuning in to Security Clearance Insecurity with your host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley of security clearance law firm, Bigley Ranish. Join us next time as we continue to answer all the questions about security clearance careers you have, but we're too afraid to ask your security manager.